Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Uh, I'd like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land we're on here today, and to pay my respects to elders past and present. Uh, My name is Tabitha Carvin, and I wrote a book which is not about many things, uh, but one thing it is about is finding a passion, which is what I'm here to talk to you about today. And I have a clicker. It works. Okay, to start on finding your passion, we have to address the question uh, of how you lost it in the first place. And it's the same process as for a lost school hat. Uh, Where did you put it, and when was the last time you remember having it? Uh, For me, the last time I remember having a passion, before the BC era, obviously, uh, was in adolescence. Back then, my passion was for Michael Hutchins, or really, just how hot he was. I would cut photos of him into heart shapes and then sticky tape them to my skin, where I approximated my own heart to be. My next passion was a serious musical appreciation for you too, and then, because it was the 90s and I was all in, uh, I became a student of Britpop, Uh, almost an anthropologist even, publishing my own fanzine, listening to everything, reading everything. Uh, And this passion was driven less by the subject, uh, the what, and more the how. I was just compelled to go deep on something, and Britpop it was. I recently sold my vinyl record collection, actually, and the record guy who bought it for me was like a serious music guy uh, about my age. Uh, or a bit older, and he was flipping through it and he's like, I actually haven't seen like half this stuff before. And I was thinking, yeah, because you've never known the commitment of a 15-year-old girl. (laughs) Teenage girls are supposed to be passionate. Uh, Anything or anyone which drifts into your field of vision is a potential target for your fire hose of feeling. Uh, Everything is all-consuming, crushing the most, the best, the worst, all affect all the time. Fueled by hormones and free time, you write out lyrics and you draw portraits of guitarists in artline pen in your visual diary. You collage, you dance in your bedroom, you scream in delight and in anguish and in hysteria. There's something a little wild about girls, a bit feral even, uh, and there always has been. Before artline pens, before Beatlemaniacs, there were the little bears of ancient Greece. I found out about this in an essay in Overland by the Tasmanian writer Bonnie Mary Liston. She writes that to celebrate the festival of Arctea, young girls of Athens would dress up in bear skins and masks and then basically go completely out of control, running madly through the woods, leaping about and dancing and growling like little bears. Last week's episode of Bluey, which was called Wild Girls, I think is vibing on this same idea, but I don't know how, like, intentionally. Uh, The wild girls of ancient Greece, the little bears, participate in this ritual to please the goddess Artemis. Uh, But it's also a rite of passage, a last-ditch chance for the girls to purge themselves of their natural-born wildness before becoming women. Because at the end of Arctea, the girls take off their bearskins once and for all and return to society, now forever tamed and restrained, ready to become the property of their future husbands. Having got it all out of their system, that's that for the wild girls. And in a way, this is still a rite of passage. If you're a girl who wants to grow up, you can't be a little bear anymore. You can only be the one or the other. There's no great throwing off of our bearskins. 
Uh, the modern ritual is more subtle, but you'll, you'll know it when it happens. Uh, there'll be a day, perhaps you're singing a song to yourself or wearing your favourite outfit or moving your body in a way that feels good to you when an older girl will catch your eye and mouth the devastating words, grow up. And you'll never move your body or use your voice in quite the same way again. You'll age out of manias and obsessions and loving everything too much. You'll stop growling and squealing and rein yourself in because you have more important things to worry about now anyway. And that is where my passions went. I gave them up willingly as part and parcel of growing up so I could fit in. And maybe that's where your passions went too. For me, it felt perfectly normal. I hardly even noticed. Into my 20s, I liked indie bands and art house films, but not any particular one uh, any more than the others. I pursued pastimes like hipster craft and shopping for homewares and studying French in a restrained but still very enjoyable way. I gave up the Britpop fanzine, but I had some blogs, including one about Newtown here, uh, and that gave me a great deal of satisfaction. I never once yearned for my juvenile passions, because who could possibly miss adolescence? Teenagers, especially the teenage me, seemed extremely lame now. She got me to where I needed to be, and once her purpose was served, I was done with her. Which is why, when decades later, I found myself developing a completely unexpected teen-like passion for Benedict Cumberbatch, it felt like something extremely wrong was happening to me. I don't really know how much knowledge to assume about Benedict Cumberbatch in this talk. If you've read my book, then you already know way more about him than you ever wanted to. Oh, you're nodding, sorry. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't and you don't know who he is, he's a quality British actor. Uh, he was Sherlock Holmes in the BBC series Sherlock. Uh, he's Doctor Strange in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's Alan Turing in The Imitation Game. Uh, and he was a mean cowboy in Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, a role for which he was Oscar nominated, but was beaten by Will Smith. Uh, he also made some memorable Graham Norton appearances. And from my vast experience of trying to explain to people who Benedict Cumberbatch is, this is actually the way I think that most people know who he is. Uh, I say, he pronounces penguin as penguin, uh, and he looks like an otter, and people are like, oh, that guy. Yeah. He's also just a human man, uh, which might be hard to believe when I describe the effect that he had on me. It all started one evening a few years ago after I'd put the kids to bed. Actually, this isn't exactly where it started because I had seen Benedict Cumberbatch a hundred times before this and thought nothing about him other than he seemed like a very good actor and had a kind of weird face. Like the underside of a stingray is how my mother once described him, which I can report is the line most quoted back to me from the book. I put the kids to bed, I plonk myself on the couch and I watch an episode of Sherlock. But now, this time, it looked totally different to me. I watched it sure, but what I was really doing was ogling. Catelyn Moran, the writer and columnist for The Times, once drunk tweeted while watching Sherlock that she would like to climb Benedict Cumberbatch like a tree. And that's pretty much how I felt too. Uh, as soon as it finished, I immediately wanted to watch the show again. Actually, I just wanted to watch Benedict Cumberbatch again. I wanted to watch everything he'd been in. Uh, it was a feeling I had not had since high school. I can't really explain why this happened on this particular evening. I can only tell you that a person I'd seen a hundred times before uh, looked different after 101, and that the feelings I'd previously discarded as being malformed offcuts of adolescent development suddenly looked enticing. 
I watched all of Benedict Cumberbatch's interviews on YouTube. I watched him while the children napped. I conducted endless searches here for him in Google Images while ro rolling toy cars around on the floor. I listened to him on my phone, a background purr, while making dinner. When the children were in bed, I made my husband Nathan watch Benedict Cumberbatch's entire back catalogue. One night after the other, including an interminable movie where he plays William Pitt the Younger. Remember that, Nathan? What a time it was, huh? <laughs> it was extremely, extremely fun. I was deep in the trenches of child-rearing at the time, stuck at home, my schedule determined by nap times and snack breaks. When Nathan would come home from work of an evening, my most interesting stories would be about what was on special at the supermarket. I existed in a world where insignificant things carried great weight. I could only think of what to make for dinner or if the weather was appropriate for drying two loads of washing or three. And it all mattered so much because there was nothing else, just me and the dinners and the washing and the children. So you can imagine just how fun it was to have something else to occupy me. But also, I felt like I was 100% losing my mind. Here I was, a mother, a wife, a smart person, a grown-up, basically experiencing a schoolgirl crush on a celebrity. I didn't cut out his face into a heart shape and sticky tape it to my chest, but I wasn't far off. Uh, I couldn't account at all for why it was happening to me, and this is how it felt, like it was happening to me, outside of my control. I thought it might be some kind of mental health crisis, or a hormone imbalance, or just a basic cry for help. But whatever it was, I, I simply did not have time for it. I just read a Bureau of Statistics study that the category of Australian who feels most pressed for time is women aged 35 to 44. And I read that and I felt a burst of pride. It's me! And when I developed this weird thing for Benedict Cumberbatch, it was inescapably as an Australian woman aged 35 to 44, pressed for time. In particular, my role as mother occupied so much of my life. It went all the way to the edges of me and even slightly beyond the edges too, like colouring in that didn't stay between the lines. If I wanted to make space for something else, it was going to have to be at the expense of this role, the motherness. There were no hours left in the day to add something, so it was going to have to be a taking away. And once you enter into this kind of calculation, you inevitably get caught up in the question of what is a good use of your time. And this is why, having lost our passions in adolescence, we don't then go looking to get them back, because they're not a good use of our time. For something to warrant you taking away from something else, like your role as a mother, which is very important, or any caring roles, professional roles, domestic roles, all the stuff that really matters, then that something is going to have to be worth a lot and mean a lot and do a lot. It's going to have to be productive, make you fitter and smarter and more beautiful and just altogether a more optimised person. Otherwise, how could you possibly justify or defend it, even to yourself? Now, what I wanted to do was, <laughs> with my time was look at pictures of Benedict Cumberbatch. Is it any wonder it felt so wrong? Swapping your children for Benedict Cumberbatch is not okay. It makes you feel like a bad mother, not to mention a bad wife. Oh, and if you want to know what my husband thinks about all of this, which I know that you do, then you will have to buy the book at the bookshop. Uh, <clears throat> on top of feeling like a terrible mother and a terrible wife, I felt something else too, which was profound embarrassment. And this is the next reason why we don't go looking to get our passions back, 
even if we might feel like there's something missing in our life. And that is because what would people think? As far as I was concerned, a celebrity crush was just the dumbest, most embarrassing thing that I could imagine happening to a person. However, as I discovered pretty quickly, it's actually a thing that has happened to a lot of people, including many women my age and even much older. I found out that Benedict Cumberbatch is in fact famous for the size of his rabid female fan base, known collectively and affectionately as the Cumberbitches. <laughs> you might think that discovering that I was not alone would make me feel less embarrassed, but no. The very existence of the Cumberbitches just made things worse. Sure, I was unable to work out what was happening to me, but there was one thing I was certain of. I was not them. They were the living proof of how cringy and immature it is to be in love with a celebrity. They were the public face of my private fears. I knew instinctively that I had to give them a wide berth or they'd grab me with their zombie arms. I've always known to avoid groups of women and girls loving something. The more there are of them, the stupider and more embarrassing their feelings become. The Beatlemaniacs, the Beliebers, the Directioners, the BTS Army, romance writers, Fifty Shades of Grey readers, Eat, Pray, Love devotees, reality TV watchers, teeny boppers, pink-wearing preschoolers, the Cumberbitches. Despite their enormous market power, they devalue the cool factor of everything they touch. Why would anyone voluntarily throw themselves in with this lot? I had always chosen the alternative option to be not like the other girls. Which is funny because is there anything more like the other girls than being paranoid about how you're coming across? Something we're trained to do as women is to form our self-esteem through the eyes of others, placing other people's opinions of ourselves above our own, of us above our own in terms of value and importance. In the academic literature, this is called other-oriented relational self-concepts. It's basically, does my bum look big in this, but for everything? Is this an appropriate way for me to behave? What will people think? How do I avoid looking like one of these girls? There's a study which came out of La Trobe Uni, which illustrates really nicely how this impulse can interfere with the strangest things, including our own experience of pleasure. In the study, researchers sit down with focus groups of women who are sexually attracted to men and show them a PowerPoint slideshow of famous hot guys. The researchers then say, go for it, objectify them, and record the women's reactions. It starts off, as you would expect, with some good old-fashioned ogling. Tom Hiddleston is rated highly for having an intelligent kind of hotness. Leonardo DiCaprio is agreed to have the perfect dad bod. But then, unbelievably quickly, the perving starts to get caught up in extreme mental gymnastics as the women lose their ability to just look at the men without worrying about how this makes them look. They start a discussion about how someone like Channing Tatum with a muscly, perfect body is attractive, but actually, good-looking men like him make them feel bad about their own bodies. Jane, 34 years old, says that she was married to a too-perfect man. She'd feel, I wasn't keeping up my end of the bargain. But even though they're just looking at a PowerPoint presentation, they're not, like, arranging marriages, but this is where their, their thinking goes. Lydia, 28, says she grew up believing she is the fat girl, so she's not entitled to ogle the guy. She says her mentality is, oh, I'm not attracted to the playboy guy because I would never go for him and he would never go for me. 
Then the women get bogged down in a conversation about the ethics of casual sex with good-looking men and what participating in such shallow activities says about them. We're so used to seeing ourselves through the eyes of others that if we are tasked with looking at hot two-dimensional men, we immediately switch to what they would think if they looked at us. We worry about how it would make them feel. Is this okay? The researchers note, the act of gazing on and taking pleasure in the bodies of men appeared to actually intensify the bodily and psychic labour of the women themselves. Even perving is hard work. But it's nice to care about the feelings of others, of course, and, and what they think of you. And it can even be uh, a necessary survival mechanism. But all those mental gymnastics and all that effort not to offend, all the labour passing your thoughts and feelings through the tests of an imaginary ex uh, external adjudicator ends up leaving you empty-handed. We never really get to hear what the women in that study even think of the hot guys. I mean, I'm not even sure they know what they like because they're caught at the first hurdle of whether it's okay for them to like it. And we become so used to seeing ourselves from the outside in that our inner worlds can become inaccessible to us in a kind of dissociation. As one reader described it to me in a message, we police ourselves into oblivion. It's not just about who we think is hot. It ends up filtering through to everything. And this is the next reason why we perhaps don't find ourselves missing our passions, because we don't know what we like anymore. If you ask women to write down a list of our interests, forget passions, we're just talking about interests here, many of us don't even know where to start. I challenge readers in my book to do this, write a list of interests, and I've had reports of it prompting complete psychic collapse. Because an interest or a passion is just for you. It's not supposed to matter what anyone else thinks, and, and that's the problem. That's not a line of inquiry we're used to pursuing. So not only does it end up feeling completely normal not to have a passion, it's almost a self-protection measure not to think about why that is. But still, you'd think we'd notice the absence of a passion because passions are fun, and surely we would notice a lack of fun in our lives. But having time dedicated just to having fun is not really a thing for many women either. In her book about time pressure called Overwhelmed, the American journalist Bridget Schulter writes, women have never had a history or a culture of leisure or play, and after childhood, women tend to lose play entirely. Fun just hasn't been built into the way women are supposed to use our time, which as we age is directed more and more to caring for others. At best, Schulter says, we have invisible leisure, this is what she calls productive, socially sanctioned leisure activities like gardening and crafting and batch cooking and school fundraising. This is, she said, the only kind of acceptable and industrious leisure time most women have ever known. It's often piecemeal and interrupted and not the sole focus of your attention. It's listening to an audiobook that you have to listen to for your, to your book club while you watch your kids at the swimming lessons. It's the half-assed manicure you give yourself while waiting to pick up your parents for a medical appointment. It's the barbecue, which was fun, but you had to make a side dish at home first and then you actually just sat at the kids' table to make sure that they ate. And by the way, when you see the stats about leisure time, those examples would be counted in the category of women's free time. The alternative to leisure, invisible leisure, is pure leisure, which should feel like play, not work. You don't do it out of social obligation or just because you know it's good for you. You don't do it because it helps others in your community or to put it on your CV. 
pure leisure is just for fun and requires a deliberate choice to carve out non-purposive time just for yourself without worrying what anyone else thinks. If you were to write that list of interests, how many things would fit into this category of pure leisure? I'll give you some examples. Going to the football, watching the cricket, driving remote-controlled cars around little tracks, surfing, playing computer games, fishing, or just taking the boat out, tinkering with old engines, playing chess, playing, playing golf, playing pool, playing poker, collecting memorabilia, geocaching, bowling, paintball, darts. People of all genders can participate in these activities, of course, and they do. But generally speaking, men have done a much better job than women at cultivating and protecting their pure leisure time throughout their entire life. In Australia, even though men are more likely to work longer hours than women in paid employment, they still make more time to spend on leisure every single day. In heterosexual couples, this leisure gap only increases if they have children. Becoming a father hardly impacts on a man's leisure time. And in fact, becoming a father actually reduces the amount of time a man spends on housework. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> It is the case in almost every single country in the world that men have more leisure time than women. But in Overwhelmed, Schulte discovers there's a place where fun is built into women's lives. It is Denmark. Here, even mothers have 1.5 hours of pure child-free leisure every single day, during which they get up to all kinds of shenanigans. This is, of course, only possible because of Denmark's famously well-regulated and subsidised working conditions, plus a concerted, top-down effort to embed gender equality into the culture. Schulte visits some of these Danish mothers uh, and intends an evening trapeze class with them while the kids are all in childcare. She asks them, don't you ever feel guilty, selfish, that you're neglecting the children, worried about the to-do list? The mothers look at her blankly so her host offers up an answer on their behalf. I think Danish women, he says, perhaps know their worth. This is the next step to finding your passion, realising that you didn't lose it at all. You were robbed. After interviewing dozens of other Cumberbitches, I came to see that the most interesting thing about us wasn't that we had all found ourselves weirdly falling for Benedict Cumberbatch against our will. It was that we were all so happy. We had found something we liked. And if I stripped back all the noise and all the background interference about whether it was appropriate and what would people think and what would Benedict Cumberbatch think and what would my husband think, I could see that what I was experiencing was actually just pure leisure, something just for me. If it felt wrong, it was because it was transgressive going against everything I'd been taught about how women and especially mothers, mothers should be and what constitutes a good use of our time. And if it felt weird and immature, it was just because I couldn't see other women doing it. Because actually, it is completely normal to keep and carry your passions all the way from childhood into adulthood. It's just we only see some people doing it. I was at Lake Burley Griffin not long ago with my family and we saw remote control sailboats being driven around on the lake. And we made our way closer to have a look and my son was wondering whether he might be able to have a go. And as we approached, we saw who was operating the boats, and it was not kids. It was middle-aged men and older, and these boats looked like they were worth thousands of dollars. 
Uh, and it looked really fun. And I imagine how good would it feel to be a grown-up with the income to spend on the high-tech, fancy version of a toy you played with as a kid. It's like the big, expensive Lego sets you see at the Lego shop. Whoops. Uh, it's normal for people to stay devoted to the hobbies and toys and franchises of their youth, the superheroes and the sports teams. It's just I couldn't see any other grown women sticking up posters of heartthrobs. The closest I could think of was when I saw some women cosplaying Japanese manga characters outside the exhibition centre during a, a comic con one time. That's the kind of adult, high-budget version of playing dress-ups. They looked like the rainbow bright dolls of my youth, gorgeous and unreal. And I was admiring them as I was walking along with my dad at the time, who noticed them too and said, is that some kind of sex thing? <laughs> to his credit, it is hard to know what to think when you see a woman having fun. When, <laughs> when the Finnish Prime Minister was filmed dancing with her girlfriends, the world practically lost its mind. She had to apologise twice and reassure constituents it would not affect her ability to do the job. When women like doing something, it's so baffling that to understand it, we need either an apology or an explanation. Just last week on Radio National, there was a segment about why is it that middle-aged women love the band The Cure? It's a total mystery that we need to dissect to make it make sense. What does it tell us about them? Who is it really for? What does it mean? What's the whole deal? What's the whole deal with Benedict Cumberbatch? People ask me that all the time, especially at work when they walk past my desk and see that it's covered in pictures of Benedict Cumberbatch, which it soon was after I realised I had no reason to be embarrassed. There's a guy at my work who has an even greater passion on display, though. He loves the Dragons, the football team. I know this because I've seen his Dragons mug and his Dragons poster his dragon's flag and his dragon's tattoo. And I recently discovered he also has a special dragon's number plate on his car. I also receive his emails about the office tipping competition in which I imagine he chooses dragons, dragons, dragons as the winners in every game. I believe he loves the dragons even more than I love Benedict Cumberbatch. This is, of course, completely fine because it's okay for people to love different things but I do not think this is something he ever has to say. It's something I have to say, though, all the time to the people who pass my desk and want to know why I like Benedict Cumberbatch. What is it about him? <laughs> Explain it. Or they feel the need to tell me that they, they just don't get it. Hmm. <laughs> I don't get football at all. Uh, I have absolutely no idea what it is about the Dragons, which means so much to my colleague. But when it comes to sport, intense passion, the kind that inspires you to get tattooed, is so normal that no one is going to question my colleague about it. Not only is sport the kind of passion that you can have throughout your entire life course, the way you express that passion doesn't have to change no matter how you age. It's normal in sport to weep or scream your lungs out, paint your face, throw yourself all over your friends, and apparently in some places to even climb telegraph poles to celebrate a win. But women who dare to express their passion like a sports fan better get used to defending it or explaining it. I recently heard an interview with Lucy Blackiston, who's an amazing New Zealand woman who runs the news explainer site, Shit You Should Care About. 
She posts deep dives into serious world events and also sometimes, because she's a Harry Styles fan and it's her website, she posts about Harry Styles. She said that whenever she does this, though, men message her to tell her she shouldn't. They tell her, when you post about Harry Styles, it discredits everything else you write about. This is funny because sport is actually included on the news every evening and yet the credibility of the news seems completely fine. But people don't see sport and Harry Styles as the same thing. Even though fans go to see football and Harry Styles in the exact same stadiums, all wearing merch, screaming, communing with other fans, it's different when girls like something. Like, it really is just different. This is an Instagram, this is a, yeah, a comment from an Instagram post which was about this point, comparing sport fans to Harry Styles fans. The sport fans did not like it. I am a fan of Ronaldo, the commenter replied. Someone who exemplifies peak human performance, great work ethic, and is an inspiration for anyone coming from a poor background to never stop striving for success. Harry Styles has literally no use in society other than, a, other than mediocre pop. I don't want to denigrate sport. Not only would I not dare to, I don't know if you remember what happened to Mia Friedman a few years ago when she said she didn't care about the Tour de France on TV. I genuinely think people should be allowed to be into whatever they like. But I feel the need to point out that there is nothing inherently more worthy about sport. It's been arbitrarily as inflated as having a use to society because the people who love it are the same people who have, historically, made the decisions about the kind of things to give more attention to. And that has come at the expense of what other people love. One reader wrote to me from the US about her experience of being only a few women working in an engineering firm. She's a Taylor Swift fan. So when Taylor announced that she would be dropping a surprise album that night, the reader immediately asked for the following day off as annual leave so she could stay up late listening to it, analyzing it, with all the other Swifties. And this became a huge joke in the office, with her colleagues riffing on the idea that she must still be 12 years old. One of them asked her if she had unicorns on her bedspread. It affected her ability to be taken seriously in the workplace. And yet when baseball season rolled around, the same colleagues routinely took time off to travel and go to games. They used official office channels to communicate about fantasy baseball, which is a game where you pretend you manage an imaginary baseball team. This, however, is all completely fine and very grown up and very professional and very normal. And because it's normal, we don't even think about it. I know I didn't think about it when I supported and cultivated my son Teddy's passion for cars, buying him model cars and car books and taking him to car shows. I hate cars and I have no idea where he got this passion, but it felt innate and important, so I supported it. However, when it came to my daughter's passion, which you could summarise as girl things, I openly denigrated, denigrated it. My daughter Dulcie likes pink things, sparkly things, rainbow things, high heels, unicorns, fairies, brides, butterflies, bunnies and the babysitter's club. And she loves them with the same passion my son has for cars. And it used to really irk me. I'd roll my eyes over and cringe over how, even with my progressive parenting, my daughter had fallen victim to this stereotype of prescribed femininity. And I'd tell her not to wear the tutus, wear the NASA t-shirt instead. I thought I was teaching her she didn't have to limit herself. But what I was actually teaching her was that even though there's no such thing as girl toys and boy toys, when a girl plays, it's somehow different. 
A boy does what he does because he has a passion. He follows his heart. It's a worthy pursuit with lasting value, so we better support and protect it. When a girl does what she does, it's merely the byproduct of outside forces. She's being manipulated into having inauthentic feelings for something with dubious appeal. Basically, boys can enjoy play for a lifetime. Girls are supposed to mature out of it. When people are buying my kids presents, they'll say to me, I know I can get Teddy anything to do with cars, but what does Dulcie want? Dulcie wants lipstick. Dulcie wants high heels. Get her some textures, I'd say. And just like that, I was ripping up not only her list of interests, but the very idea that she's capable of having one. Then, one day in the future, someone will ask her what she's into, and she will be shocked to find out that she doesn't even know. I realised that if I wanted to do the right thing by the girls, by my girl in particular, I needed to show that it's normal to be a, stop the presses, woman having fun. I, I realised I shouldn't be asking for anyone's approval or putting in any effort convincing people it's an okay use of my time. I needed to show that women can have lifelong passions too and express their love for those passions however they want. Which brings us to the final step of finding your passion, which is what happens when you do. This is a photo of Caroline. She wrote to me after finishing reading my book. She wanted to send me this picture of herself taken at the end of a Harry Styles concert, that mediocre pop star with no use to society. She writes, for years I had been feeling like I was shrinking inside myself, but then I started to love Harry and it led to everything and more. I travelled by myself from Chicago to London to see him perform at Wembley. When he played Sign of the Times and it rained, I felt my soul fill out my body again. I felt like I took up space in the world. I could feel the rain bone deep. I remember wiggling my fingers and it not feeling detached. The photo, she says, is a monument marking the night I got myself back. It's a photo of how she sees herself, not through the filter of others. It's not the contorted face of a maniac or a mindless zombie. It's a photo of a girl with a passion. That's what I see too now when I look at photos of beetle maniacs and cumber bitches. I see how happy they are. And that's how I feel about the teenage me too, with her too deep obsessions and intense crushes. There's nothing to cringe about anymore. It is wonderful to be just like the other girls. Caroline's message then continued, please tell me you're seeing Harry when he is in Australia. Please tell me your daughter is going too in her favourite sequins, accessorised with feathers, glitter and high heel shoes. Can you see yourself in this picture? Not at a Harry Styles concert necessarily, but can you see yourself getting that kind of joy from something you love? If you accept that it's possible to do so, even if you're older than Caroline, and if you didn't have to explain it or hold yourself to account for it, would that change anything for you? But this part of the process of actually finding a passion seems strangely hard, I know. Who has the energy and the time to do that? But also, I'm desperate for you to know that it's worth it because it feels good. It feels good in a way that's hard to get across because the alternative, not having a passion, doesn't necessarily feel bad, just normal. 
You just need a place to start, and actually the place to start isn't too taxing. I mean, ideally there'd be an entire structural overhaul of our childcare and parental leave systems, and there'd be greater equality in how we share unpaid domestic labour. But first, it's just about thinking. It's about your inner life. It's being curious and noticing the things which make you feel good, and then not instinctively shutting them down because they don't pass muster against the standards set by others. There's a New Zealand parenting columnist called Emily Wrights, who I absolutely love, and she describes this process in a column of hers about clothes. Emily begins by explaining that for her public appearances, she only ever wears black, baggy dresses. She's a feminist, and so she believes that how she looks shouldn't matter as much as what she has to say. And this is, anyway, this is the kind of things she thinks she should wear, given her age and her appearance. But then she meets Monique Day, an Auckland personal stylist. Monique tells Emily, I'm not saying that you need to stop wearing black. I'm saying it's about choice. Have you chosen this for yourself or have the pressures of the world chosen it for you? Monique continues, the first thing I ask my clients is, what do you like? You'd be astounded at how many women have been so busy in service to others that they no longer know. Emily is skeptical, but tries really hard to articulate what she actually likes and then starts wearing the clothes which Monique selects for her. A pink jacket, gold shoes, a green dress which makes her look like a Christmas tree, which I realised I then, like, cosplayed. Uh, she notices that when she wears these clothes, she stands taller, feels powerful even. Each time she catches a glimpse of herself in one of the outfits, she feels a tingle, a dopamine hit. Emily is shocked by the results. For the first time ever, she experiences a desire to be seen and she wants an explanation for it. She says, I asked Monique, was it the clothes? It's not the clothes, Monique says. It's showing up for yourself, Emily, the way we as women have to show up for everyone else in our lives. It's not the clothes. It's not Benedict Cumberbatch, as powerful as he is. It's just finding something you like, something that asks nothing of you, something that makes you feel like you. And it starts a process. You realise what you're capable of and you begin to exercise that capability, wanting more from your life, demanding it even. It changes how you see yourself in the world. You find yourself taking up more space like Caroline. It makes you happier and it makes you angrier too about the kinds of things like the division of household labour which require rage to change. So, what do you like? If you start to think about it and you don't find an answer, that's okay. You don't need any extra things to feel bad about. But if this is the case, then perhaps you can look back. Think about something you used to love. It doesn't really matter what it was because you probably don't like that specific thing anymore. It's just to remind you that you used to love things, maybe a lot. Open yourself up to the idea that there's still a little bear somewhere inside of you. If after looking back, you still don't find an answer, don't worry. But try to be receptive to the idea that an answer might come, maybe when you least expect it, maybe while you're watching TV. And if you see someone else loving something, instead of cringing, try to inhabit their world for a moment, see yourself in the picture. What would make you smile like that? And if you do find something you like, but actually it feels more like love, then give it all you've got. Imagine you're a sports fan and throw yourself into it. And if you find something you like and it feels silly or a waste of your time, then you're on the right track. You're having fun. That's the whole point. 
I won't tell you what else to do. The rest will follow. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.